Well, we left Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord, called to go east toward Assyria and Nineveh. He's heading west, freshly aboard a ship sailing for Tarshish, somewhere in the western Mediterranean. Fleeing, it turns out, fleeing from the mercy of God. He's got enemies. These enemies must be hated. You have no idea how evil and demonic these people are. So he runs. Picking up the story today in verse 4 of chapter 1 through verse 10, we'll make the three points. You can find them on the outline in the bulletin. The storm, the sleeper, and the sovereign. The storm, the sleeper, and the sovereign. So first then, the storm. God, it turns out, won't let Jonah go. His mercy is always ahead of us. Even in our rebellion, especially in our rebellion, perhaps. And so here, as is often the case in our lives, this is mercy masked as a violent storm. Right? Mercy masked as a violent storm. Jonah runs, but, the text says, but the Lord sent a great wind, a great wind on the sea. The breath of God, the accompaniment, right, the conduit of his word, the word that Jonah is fleeing from, the breath of God is now a great wind on the sea. Told to go to the great city, He's now engulfed by a great wind. Literally, the text says, the Lord hurled the wind. He throws the wind down like one might throw a javelin. And this is mercy disguised as violence. find yourself in the middle of a violent storm in your life? Often it looks the opposite of mercy, right? How could it possibly be mercy? There's that great title of a book written about C.S. Lewis called A Severe Mercy. This is a severe mercy. He throws a great wind on the sea, and the text says, such a violent storm arose. Again, Jonah was to arise and go to Nineveh. Instead, a storm arises. He was supposed to go to the great city. Instead, you get a great wind. Now, it's true, of course, that not every storm in our lives is the product of sin. But here's one of the lessons of this passage. One of the many, I think. Sometimes... You are just the sailors on the boat with the guy who sinned, right? Sometimes it's just, you know, you're in the same country. You're in the same state. You're in the same family. And so you're on the boat. It's not your fault, but the boat's capsizing. But the important thing to see is that sin produces storms. Some of them are really big, but some of them are small. But it produces them. Seen, some of them are unseen. 
Some of them happen now. Some of them are going to happen later. This one is so violent that it threatens to break the ship up. (laughs) And all these sailors, right, these weathered men of the sea, presumably men not easily scared, they know this is no ordinary storm we are in here. And so the text tells us in verse 5, they were afraid. And they each cried out to their own God. So the men represent the nations. They represent many nations. We know that because each one has his own God. Right? And these gods would be regional, right? Like local, territorial deities. These men would be polytheists. But they would often have one sort of go-to God. Right? So, so for all of their error, all of their error, at least they have the instinct here. Right? The sense that they might need divine aid. Help. Right? It's been said that there are no atheists in foxholes. I actually doubt that's true. I'm sure there's plenty of them. But the point that Samuel Johnson made when he said, you know, the famous writer, that there's nothing like the prospect of an imminent hanging to focus the mind. That point is true. There's nothing like the prospect of being swallowed up alive at sea or by death itself to turn one into a worshiper of whatever it is that might get us out of this thing, that might save us. Right? This, is, this experience of these men is common to men at sea. It's even documented at some length, believe it or not, in Psalm 107, the general experience. A delightful psalm, by the way, if you haven't read it recently. In Psalm 107, it speaks of merchant sailors on the sea. It says, they saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful works in the deep. He spoke and he stirred up a tempest and he lifted up the waves. They mounted up into the heavens and they went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They are at their wit's end. At such a time, clarity about what is really important breaks in on people. This is the great value of storms. Storms force you to do triage. If you lost everything you had in one of these fires in the great Northwest, you're looking at your stuff and your land and your labor and your things a lot differently today than you did a week or so ago. You're looking at what's important and what's not important, what lasts and what doesn't last, because we're perpetually deluded into thinking stuff that doesn't last is going to last. And storms force triage. They force focus. They force reordering. And here, these men start the triage process by throwing the cargo overboard. All of these precious goods, this is their livelihood. This is their economic profit. And they toss it into the sea to lighten the ship. You can't take it with you anyway. And to their credit, these sailors are doing everything they can, everything they know how, to save all that are on the vessel. 
Storms will come. Losses accumulate. Anyone who gets some years on them knows this. The losses pile up. Triage is going to have to be done. If you don't do it, life will do it for you. And Jesus told us this. He said, look, storms are going to crash up against your life. And only a house which is built on the rock of Christ and his word is going to stand these storms. Everything ephemeral will vanish. Even what we thought was solid will melt into air. And we reveal, we show who we really are in the storm. What it is we really value. Where our treasure really is. Where our citizenship is. Where our affections are. So what's important for here for these men, and for us, is that in the midst of the chaos... Because when you're in the midst of this, there's, there's, no, there's no discerning any order. It's just chaos and loss and damage. But in the midst of that, we must, we heard this, by the way, in the opening prayer, the prayer of the day, about discerning the Lord's hand in all of his works. We have to realize, as we sang in our opening hymn, that behind a frowning providence... He hides a smiling face. Right? This is something we do by faith. I mean, because when you're in the midst of the storm, you're, you think, how can this possibly be God's hand? How can this possibly be mercy? It's, in fact, impossible for it to be mercy, which is why we have to follow the whole narrative of the book of Jonah and the story of Scripture to its consummation. Right? Here's the great shocking truth. This hurled down tempest judgment is the mercy of God. Though nobody at the time would know it, right? We know it. But in in the midst of it, it just feels like a storm. And the hurled down storm is God's mercy. So that's the storm. The second thing here is the sleeper. Unlike those who are trying to save the ship, Jonah, we're told, has gone below deck. Right? We've seen these patterns, right? He, he was supposed to go up, arise, go to Nineveh. But instead, he went down to Joppa. And here he descends further down, below deck. He lays down, the text says, and he falls into a deep sleep. This is the exact opposite right, of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel lesson sleeping in serenity in the midst of the storm. The greater Jonah, the Lord Jesus, is the greater Jonah by being the anti-Jonah. So Jonah's sleeping. This is a man who is probably exhausted and drained from futilely running from God. Right? Living by the law, the way Jonah lives, hating his enemies, Fleeing the mercy of God. This is exhausting. It's exhausting to live this way. It's liberating and healing and life-giving to live by the free mercy of God, which is not always calculating wins and losses. Right? This has now become a man who wants to flee his, not only his commission, but if you look at the text, he wants to flee any human contact on the ship. 
So he goes below the deck and he falls asleep. You know what else sin will do to you? It will make you antisocial, right? Because God is creating a new humanity, a reconciled cosmos, right? But sin is a disintegrating force. It's an isolating force. It's an individuating kind of force. It separates people. That's why in Proverbs it says, he who isolates himself seeks his own desire. It's very telling that Jonah does this. But of course, there's no hiding from God. And so the captain appears, and the captain is clearly an honorable man. He's doing what any decent captain would do to save his crew. He finds Jonah below deck, and he says to him, How can you sleep? How can you sleep? It's the beginning of a stinging rebuke to one who has shown no concern for his neighbors, who's sleeping through the crisis. Get up and call on your God, the captain says. You know, it's interesting. In the Hebrew here, you notice that the text actually echoes the words of God himself, which opened the book. Right in the beginning of the book, God speaks to Jonah and says this, get up and call against Nineveh. And here that becomes get up and call on your God. Now, yes, the the captain's theology is bad. But he has a good bit of what we we call common grace. Grace that's not saving, but which nevertheless is from God's goodness. Right? All the good gifts of God for the sake of the common good. Food, water, biological life, general kinds of wisdom, all sorts of things. Common grace envelops all of life. It's just not off on the corner. Most of our daily experiences are experiences of this common grace existing in other human beings. And we should never despise it. Right? We should never despise the common grace or the common good. Right? For with respect to our common life, we are all, like Jonah and like the sailors, we are all in the same boat. There's a profound sense in which this is true. I mean, I'd like to not be in this COVID boat, but nobody consulted me about it. Right? right? You're, you're, everybody's in the same boat. You find yourself in all sorts of situations in life where you're just in the boat. And you need the other person and you need their gifts. Now, in this case, notice, the boat is in trouble because one of us is on it, not because an unbeliever is on it, because there's a covenant child of God who's disobedient. Everybody's in trouble. So we see the common grace of God here. You see it in things like the courage these men show, like the wisdom to unload the cargo, and like going to Jonah and saying, hey, get up, call on your God and pray. There was a, there's a well-known uh, 19th century uh, Scottish preacher named Hugh Martin. And, and Martin preached a, a sermon on this text. And the title of his sermon was, The World Rebuking the Church. Right? The church is sleeping in the story, and the world is trying to wake the church up. The world does not need its theology to be right to rebuke us. Right? I mean, Balaam's donkey, probably not a Trinitarian. Right? The world does not need to be right. 
they often show more practical care to the poor and needy for the common good than we do. I mean, even Jesus acknowledges this in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is designed to teach just this to the smug religious leadership. And something of this reversal of who's the instrument of goodness is on display in this text, right? This summons to Jonah, a sleeping Jonah, arise and call out of the mouth of a pagan captain. Right? This, is a, this mocks Jonah's disobedience, his self-indulgence. Let me tell you something about the storms in your life and the numb sleeping parts of your life. God will wake you up through some weird vessels. He will come after you. He will send a pagan captain or something. Be alert for that. Don't ignore that. God's not letting Jonah go. Now notice, Jonah was to be a prophet to the nations, to the Gentiles. And now the nations, in the person of the captain, are speaking prophetically to him, to the prodigal prophet. Maybe, the captain says, maybe your God will take notice of us. Jonah never speaks in the plural like us or we. And we will not perish. Maybe your God will take notice and we will not perish. Again, the captain's concerned about the others. Maybe he will act. Who knows? There's always this mysterious divine freedom. And notice the captain, the pagan captain, he has got an instinct for this, a sense of it. Right? Whatever he thinks about God or the gods, the captain does not think <coughs> that God is just some sort of genie in the bottle, right? who will just heed our beck and call. Maybe he will, maybe he won't, Jonah. So there's another irony, right? This pagan is more open to calling upon Jonah's God, to him hearing, to him intervening, to him saving, than Jonah, the prophet, who has an impeccable doctrine of God, is. It's really rather stunning. It's a biting irony if you're paying attention. Think of it this way. Jonah fled the pagans in Nineveh because he did not want to see God be merciful to them. And now he's surrounded by the same kind of people he fled, and they are the instruments of God's mercy to him. Now, of course, in his numbness, he's not connecting any of these dots. By now, Jonah would be awake. He would hear the storm. He would feel the storm. And he has standing in front of them the adrenaline-filled captain calling on him to pray. And his response? Nothing. Nothing. Silence. No recorded reply to the plea of the captain. After being summoned by the captain, the text shifts back to the sailors in verse 7. Jonah is in the same boat as these men, but he has no care for the common good. He shows no grace, common or otherwise, no solidarity with his neighbors. In Augustine's words, he's bent in on himself. Having rejected the call of God's word from God himself, 
he now rejects it out of the mouth of the pagan captain. Another of the themes of this section, of the whole book, frankly, is that Jonah is worse than the pagans he routinely condemns. He is worse than the pagans. Both here and throughout the book, the pagans are admirable, and Jonah is dismissive, condescending, self-centered, unhelpful, to put it mildly. But again, as I said, the irony's lost on him because one of the many things our disobedience does is it just blinds us to any kind of real, serious self-examination. We look in the mirror, we see what we're like, we walk away, we forget. So that brings me to the third point here, which is the sovereign. Jonah refuses to reply, so the sailors say, let's, let's cast lots, figure out who's responsible for this calamity. This means, by the way, that Jonah's either, he's either clueless that this storm is related to his flight, or he's recklessly withholding the truth. I mean, this is, these, neither one of these options is good. I mean, think about where his soul is now. He was happy to see the whole city of Nineveh destroyed. He was willing to sin against God for that. And now he seems perfectly content to have these men and their lives destroyed on this boat. He doesn't even respond to the captain. So the sailors are like, well, what can we do? In Israel and in the countries in the ancient Near East, lots were accepted for trying to find this stuff out. This might sound like a blame game or pure superstition to modern ears. But again, notice, at least these men, these sailors, at least they think there's some kind of moral order in the world and that somehow God or the gods will reveal that in the lot. That's actually biblical. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So in this case, when your life depends on it, and you're in the boat, right, it is better to have a sort of half-right group of quasi-superstitious pagans than to have one covenant child who happens to be disobedient on the boat. So they cast the lot, and it falls to Jonah because the Lord of the wind and the rain, you know, the waves controls the lot. So he's heard from and he's ignored the captain. He's now going to hear from more people like the people he was fleeing from. Right? God keeps tracking you down. If you won't listen to the captain, you'll get a bunch of people just like the captain. Don't run through these warning signs if you're in the middle of a storm. And notice, these sailors come to Jonah. Notice the grace they display. They don't even start with an accusation, even though the lot fell to Jonah. They actually give the guy a chance to explain. They're patient with him. They're fair with him in the midst of a raging storm, in the midst of this emergency. They come to him and they say, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble, this evil for us? In other words, the lot fell to you. What do you have to say for yourself? They are, they're allowing a defense, basically. And then they ask him these, uh, like, four rapid-fire questions. 
You know, what is your work? What is your mission? What is your country? What is your race? They're asking about his identity. Remember I said early on, this is a book about nation, race, mission. These are the questions that are asked to Jonah. And finally, unable to avoid them, Jonah speaks. He breaks his silence. And interestingly, you know what he does? He gets four questions. He only answers the last one, the one about race. From what people are you? He says, I am a Hebrew. I am a Hebrew. Now, this was often how Israelites would identify themselves in foreign contexts. And by itself, there's nothing nothing wrong with it. But we've already seen enough of Jonah, and we will see more in the book to know that for Jonah, this means something like, I am of the chosen nation. I am not one of these pagans, these unclean pagans. I'm not one of these sinners. I am righteous. They are not. I am a Hebrew. In short, it means I'm different and better than you. I'm in the covenant. You're not. I mean, it's true, formally true, of course. But it's, t- it's turned Jonah into some sort of blind, pompous, self-righteous human being. And he continues. So I'm a Hebrew. He says, and I worship the Lord. To which the reader might ask, really? You know, Jonah's confession is impeccable. You Really, you worship the Lord? As I said last week, he's a kind of half-believer. He's got the right theology. He knows how to say the right things. You know, we echo the truths of the gospel long after we stop living them. It's not like this stuff doesn't happen once. A person who's drifting away can say the gospel stuff for a long time. Finally, having buried the lead, right, Jonah gives them the goods on who the Lord is. He's the God of heaven. Who's my God? He's the God of heaven. He made the sea and the dry land. So these men can only be thinking at this point, yikes. So this would be the God who's responsible for the plight we're in then. Because your God is, is not even a local deity. You're claiming he's the creator of heaven and earth, and he's the sovereign Lord of this whole churning sea. I mean, the lot has fallen to you, and this is who you tell us your God is? You don't have to be a mathematician, right? These guys can put two and two together. And you know what the text tells us? In verse 9, they were terrified. Literally, the text says they feared a great fear. Now, again, you know, this is not the clean, enduring fear of the Lord. But they have more fear of Jonah's God than Jonah does. Right? And surely the narrator wants us to see that. So they might be thinking, you're running from the Lord of the sea into the sea with us? See, our sin and our recklessness puts other people at risk. Sin leads to stupidity. It's deeply irrational and destructive, not only to us, but to the people in the communities, in the little platoons and the little boats that we're traveling in that make up our lives, and to the common good. Jonah's sin, his sleep, his silence, his self-indulgent, nationalism, he has put these men's lives at risk. 
Because they're in the same boat. And they're all in the same strange divine sea. But remember, Jonah doesn't see this because, as I said last week, Jonah has the world divided up pretty neatly into white hats and black hats, and he's got a white hat on. And the Ninevites have black hats on. Again, he has forgotten the infinite mercy of God, which has redeemed him, as we often do. And then when we get into the church, we begin this long process of living by law. It is very subtle. We think somehow we needed less mercy than someone else needed. But that's not what the scripture says. It says we all fall infinitely short of the glory of God. Everyone's drowning in the sea of their own corruption and sin in need of the infinite mercy of God. But this is easily forgotten, right? It ends up becoming for us, as it does for Jonah, grace for me, law for thee. Right? Grace for me, law for thee. So they can only ask with this astonishment, and dread this rhetorical question at the end. And this is really a sentence of guilt, right? This is a statement of judgment against Jonah from a pagan court. What have you done? It's an astonishing passage. uh, passage. Remember I said this is not a, and even though it's accessible to children, it's not a child's story. This is a serious indictment of a self-righteous prophet of God in Israel by a bunch of -of run-of-the-mill pagan sailors. What have you done? So I want to conclude by making two points. They should be pretty obvious by now. I'm going to call them the other and storms. First, the other. So by other here, I mean people that are outside of our bubble, outside of our circle, who don't maybe look or believe or act like us or from other cultures, whatever, other, other different people, right? The text and the whole book is in part about forcing us to think through the common grace that God gives to all our neighbors and to fellow human beings, to the other, and to think about the common good because we are all in the same boat in many ways. So, We have a unique identity, right? We have a covenant identity in Christ. We're baptized into Jesus Christ, and he's our identity. And we would never, we cannot minimize that. That's the center of who we are. But remember, that does not eliminate the common life that we have, right? The common shared cultural, political, social boat we're in with unbelievers. In fact, in the new covenant, we have a kind of advantage over Jonah, right? Because the holy nation which God has, baptized you into, that holy nation is gathered from all the nations, right? It's international. It's not provincial. It is, if you will, to use a, a, maybe a, a dirtier word, you know, a word more contested, it's cosmopolitan, right? You can almost understand how Jonah could get into this Israel-centric thing, but you're baptized into the international, global, Catholic body of Christ. Jonah has not learned this. And so he treats those who are outside his circle, either with contempt or with reckless indifference, or with respect to Nineveh, with outright hatred. He has forgotten, as I said, that he is a debtor to mercy alone. And if you forget that, the whole shape of our moral lives will be skewed. He doesn't carry any sense of this around with him. We should not become that kind of person, right? There are people who don't carry this sense around with them. Sure, I was bad, 
and I did need mercy, but now I'm on the good side with the good guys, right? And then they carry around a kind of Christianity which has lost this sense that we are debtors to mercy alone. It's very easy to erect inside the Christian faith a new kind of regime of law and order. So, Jonah hasn't asked this question, which Jesus taught us to ask, which actually provoked, I should say, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? Who is my neighbor? And you'll remember the answer there, right? Whoever needs your mercy. Whoever needs your help. So, the second thing is storms. We, we heard in the New Testament lesson from Hebrews 2, this nautical metaphor of a ship. The text said we must pay more careful attention to what we've heard, lest we drift, lest we drift away from it. Let me tell you, Jonah drifted for a long time before he ran. You don't just wake up one day and run. There's drifting. Or, to put it another way, his running is just another form of drifting. Right? This sort of thing doesn't happen overnight. You don't just wake up in the middle of a storm, sleeping under deck, numb to the needs of everybody around you, having renounced your calling. This happens little by little. It happens by ignoring the formative power of the word of God. Right? We place ourselves above the word as judges rather than under the word as those criticized and cut and opened up by the word. So, though storms will come, some storms like this one are of our own making. From Jonah's point of view, this is a storm of his own making. Some storms are avoidable. So it's easy to shift into neutral in the Christian life, some kind of autopilot and drift. And thus, you're constantly called in Scripture, be awake, be alert, wake up, be alert. Wake up, sleeper, Christ will shine on you. That's what the captain is saying to Jonah in less theologically precise language. Wake up, sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. Let me point out one other thing here. Notice what God doesn't do, what we are tempted to do in this situation. God doesn't say to Jonah, well, you made your bed. You're going to sleep in it. What parent hasn't said that, right? I mean, God could have said that to Jonah. This is your fault. This is your mess. You know, maybe you should understand the consequences of your actions. There's a kind of mercy here that is not restricted just to those whom we might naturally pity, just to the unfortunate, right? It looks like God is saying that, though, doesn't it? It looks like he's saying, you made your bed, Jonah, you're going to have to sleep in it. But he's not. That is not what's happening here at all. This is the unfathomable mercy of God poured out on Jonah, even as it was poured out on us. Because you know what Jesus Christ did? He descends into the hull of our narrow, self-righteous darkness, right? into, into our, our stupor, our numbness, and his descent, his going down. Jonah went down, and then down, and then down. Christ went down, but his descent is designed to save you from drowning, to wake us from the dead. 
Right? In Christ, the mercy of God goes all the way to the bottom of our darkness and to our disobedience and engulfs it. This is what's happening to Jonah. For Christ is the God of Jonah, the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That God made flesh. Made flesh for the salvation of all men, of all the earth, of all nations, Jew, Gentile, Israel, and Nineveh. And even these pagan polytheistic sailors from all the nations. That Christ is your refuge and your shelter in a time of storm. Amen.